Hello, everyone. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to episode number 172 of our studies together. Uh, today, today's chapter is a little bit longer than normal. Um, Dr. Luke starts off discussing some issues of the Sabbath and then chooses the 12 apostles and he ends with what's often termed the Sermon on the Plain, which is a much shortened version of the Sermon on the Mount. So, without any delay, let's go ahead and dig in. Uh, we're beginning with chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 1. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples broke off the heads of the grain, rubbed off the husks in their hands, and ate the grain. But some Pharisees said, Why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus replied, Haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. He also gave some to his companions. And Jesus added, The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Okay, now, here we go again with the Pharisees. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it even amazes me to this day to, to think back that that here the Pharisees and surely some Sadducees are following Christ along in Galilee. And instead of being awed by his wisdom, even if they didn't believe him to be the Messiah, uh, he was surely a wise man. And what do they do? They don't accept his glory. They don't, they don't accept his grace. They don't accept his wisdom. They don't accept the signs that he gives of healing person after person. What do they do? They nitpick. And, and it just blows my mind. Well, what are they talking about here? Um, first, when the disciples plucked some of the grain and rubbed the kernels in their hand, um, what they're talking about is the harvesting of the grain. Okay? And where they rub the grain together between their fingers that's called a threshing operation, which we've talked about before and we'll talk about again, where Christ talks about the harvest. Well, according to Jewish tradition, Jewish law, you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Well, what the Pharisees are doing here is putting the law over God. What do I mean? Well, the example that the Pharisees gave was of, was of King David. Uh, the beloved king in, in Jewish tradition and Jewish history. Well, when David was on the run, uh, he went into the temple and ate what are called the sacred loaves, and the sacred loaves are bread that's put out for the priests. Well, here, the law concerning the showbread, which is what that bread is called, uh, was never intended to, uh, what's the word, to be more important 
than the children of God themselves. In other words, you weren't supposed to interpret the law of David eating the showbread as being more important than allowing David himself or his men to starve. Okay? That, that's not what the law of the Sabbath was intended. Okay? Just as where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field and harvesting the grain and threshing the grain, rubbing it together so they can eat the kernels. Well, that law was not supposed to be more important than, how would I phrase this, phrase this a work of necessity. In other words, if Jesus and his followers, Jesus and his children, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and his apostles were walking about doing the work of God, and along the way they were hungry, did God say, oh, you can't harvest the grain and eat it? That's, that's not what that, that law was intended to mean. Okay, the word of God, the law of God is intended to guide man on their course to righteousness, on their course to salvation. And the Pharisees themselves nitpicking the quote unquote work of his disciples is just stupidity. Okay, if God's children are hungry, God would want his children to eat. If they were truly Pharisees, Okay, if they were truly representatives of God's law, they would know this instead of walking back and forth and nitpicking over Christ's disciples getting something to eat. Okay, and that's what these Pharisees did time and time again, following along Jesus. Oh, well, why aren't you fasting? Well, Jesus exclaimed why. Okay, his disciples were with him. Okay, when he leaves them at that point, they can fast. And I, as I interpret the scriptures, you may choose to do so yourselves. After Jesus leaves, they can fast and mourn his loss. They had the privilege of spending time with the Son of Man, the Son of God. Okay, and here the Pharisees are nitpicking. And then when Christ goes into Jerusalem, what do the Pharisees and the Sadducees do there? They're so jealous of the crowds that, that, that Christ drew by his wisdom, by his teaching, by his preaching, by his miracles, that they say, oh, well, let's go ahead and crucify him. Therefore, we have less competition and we can gain more from the followers of Yahweh. And it's just... Well, it just, for lack of a better word, pisses me off. And I apologize for saying that. Okay? And that's what's going on here. Okay? Jesus gave the example of the King David himself, where he knew that it was okay to go ahead and eat, eat the showbread. Why? Because God would not want his children to starve. In other words... To quote some very wise men in our generation, duh, okay? Verse 6, on another Sabbath day, this is not the same Sabbath day, this is a different Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand, and I should point out here, my memory could be wrong, but I think Dr. Luke is the only one to point out that it was the right hand. It doesn't mean much, I, I just find it interesting. Uh, on another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. 
the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees watched closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Now, let me just point something out here, okay? Plotting against the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would obviously be a sin. But even if they didn't accept that Jesus Christ was their Messiah, plotting against any man, whether or not he's doing good deeds on the Sabbath, in itself would be against the law. Okay? So keep that in your mind as we keep going here. Verse 8. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the deformed hand, Come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward. Then Jesus, I just love the way Jesus worked. It was just awesome. I'm sorry. I just, I can't help but get excited. And I'll explain it here in a minute. But this is, this is Jesus in action. It's beautiful. All right. Verse 9. Then Jesus said to his, <laughs> I can't help but laugh. <laughs> Jesus has got him here. Okay. Verse nine, then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? Is, is the day that... that the Father set aside to worship Him is the day of rest, a day to save life or destroy it. Now, this would mean more to, to the quote-unquote teachers of the law, that that's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, okay? This day would mean more to them than it would to us in the 21st century. Okay, this would be an excellent philosophical or theological debate, okay? So after Jesus asked that very question, what does he do? Verse 10, he, meaning Jesus, he looked around at them one by one and then said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At this, the enemies, were, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. Okay, now let's think about this, this carefully, okay? The enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. Well, first of all, who is Dr. Luke saying are the enemies of Jesus? That would be the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees. The Jews, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, are those who were supposed to be religious representatives of Almighty God. Okay? Keep that in mind. They were wild with rage. Why were they wild with rage? Because Christ healed a man? They were wild with rage because he healed a man with a withered hand? Okay? 
that Jesus Christ did work on the Sabbath by healing somebody? Good Lord! Well, the other reason they were upset is right before Christ healed this man, what did he do? He says, he, he, he posed a quandary to them. Is it permitted to do good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Well, Christ did the good deed there. He healed the man's hand. So, if he healed the man's hand, what was the evil? The evil was Christ knew their hearts. They were plotting against him. And remember, it doesn't matter. It does, but in the case of of the philosophical theological discussion, okay, the evil that was committed was committed in the hearts of those who represented the religious law that they so worshipped. Remember, they worshipped the law. If they knew God, they would know they would know that it's okay for the disciples to eat the grain. Okay, you see. The Pharisees would rather that the the disciples starve than pick a little bit of grain for something to eat. The teachers of religious law would rather this man keep going about year after year in pain with a withered hand than for Christ to heal him. They were wild with rage because Christ knew their hearts were evil. Christ knew ahead of time that they were going to crucify him, but here they knew their hearts were already plotting against him. Why were their hearts plotting against him? Was he going around robbing people, murdering people, lying to people, committing sins? He was healing and teaching. And that caused the rage in their hearts. That caused the evil in their hearts. Now, let's think about this a little bit more deeply. What would be the source of the rage in their hearts? Would that source be God? Would that source be the law? The law of Moses? The law handed down by God to Moses? Or would that source be something else? Most likely, jealousy for the popularity that Christ had. And if that source of jealousy is indeed the evil, what will be the source of evil? And indeed, it was and is to this day Satan. Okay? All this because Christ healed a man. All this because Christ and his disciples were a little hungry, so they ate some grain. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is what the great teachers of the law and the Pharisees saw as being wrong, as being sin. Remember, these very people were the upper echelon of the Jewish faith at that time who today represents the upper echelon of our faith. 
the very preachers that we have in our churches that say homosexuality is okay. Well, is it God that said homosexuality is okay? No. The very preachers that are defending those who wish their children to have their genders quote-unquote changed. Is that God that thinks that's okay? No. It literally is Satan. The very preachers that say, oh, it's okay for a woman to have an abortion in X month. Well, I've already taught you before. God said our lives are in our blood. And the human body begins forming blood cells on the seventh day. Therefore, the seventh day and beyond, by the definition of God, there is life in that child. That's why I don't think that the day after pill is wrong. There's nothing in Scripture that would define that as being a sin. In my opinion, take that or leave it. Let your hearts decide. Let the Holy Spirit within you decide. But God defines life as being in our blood. Okay? So what is the source of the rage in these people that are supposed to be the religious leaders? Okay? Is that rage a righteous rage because Christ was doing something against the law of God, against the heart of God, against the spirit of God? No. Okay? Now, if that type of antipathy toward God existed 2,000 years ago, what type of antipathy to God do we have today? All right. Keep that in your heart. Now, uh, verse 12. One day, soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. Notice how Dr. Luke points this out time and time again. Jesus Christ himself prayed a lot. Okay. How often do we pray? I don't pray enough. I talk to God a lot during the day, but a lot of times I feel like I'm I'm rambling on to God and I feel guilty because Christ himself said that that uh you know prayer pray in a closet. Uh, don't ramble on to to gain the attention of your congregants, you know. And we'll get to those verses and I'll I'll talk about prayer. And sometimes I feel guilty for for whining to God that you know, but but I'm probably wrong. I should pray more, okay? And that's why I like to read the Word, uh, even just for myself. But here I'm doing it, hopefully, that uh, this will open up your hearts to God. Uh, Because I don't want that anyone should suffer eternal damnation. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it exists. And I don't want anyone to suffer like that even my enemies, and I've got a few. I pray for them, really. Uh, I have forgiven them. Verse 13. Okay, so Jesus prayed all night. 
Verse 13, at daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Now, a disciple is one who follows Jesus, and an apostle is one who was chosen by Jesus. Okay? I'm a disciple. I have had one vision from God, and I keep saying to myself, one of these days I should share that with you because I wrote down everything about it, but I'm not going to because I don't feel led to. But it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, <laughs> words can't describe it. And I'm not sure that I understand it, but there are some things that I experienced that were, uh, uh, I can't even talk about it. Okay. So uh, he chose 12 of them to be his apostles. Here are their names. Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, who we talked about earlier, was Levi, the tax collector, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, that's a different Simon, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. A few more notes about the apostles. Uh, Simon, I've mentioned, is the one he named Peter. And um, uh, he was the son of Jonah, probably the most prominent of the apostles. We really get into him, into Acts. And uh, we already talked about his mother-in-law being healed and how how he had a mother-in-law. And so he was married. Uh, which, as I've discussed before, um, I, I don't want to get into a rant about Catholicism, but let's just keep going. Uh, Andrew was Simon's brother. Uh, Andrew is the one that introduced Peter to the Lord. Okay. Uh, James, uh, the son of Zebedee. Uh, let's see. James um, went with Peter and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, which we'll get to uh, again, uh, which is just something I wish I could have witnessed. Uh, man, what was that like? Uh, you know, seeing Jesus in his transformed body. And uh, I think it was Moses that was there. And then God, of course, uh, showed up again and said, this is my son of whom I'm proud. Uh, John, the son of, 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 uh, the son of uh, Zebedee, uh, well, Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder, okay? And uh, this was the John who uh, wrote the Gospel of John and uh, the epistles uh, bearing his name and, uh, well, also the book of Revelation, okay? Philip uh, was a native of Bethsaida. Uh, he introduced uh, Nathaniel to Jesus, and uh, Bartholomew, uh, well, I don't know much about him. Um, it's believed that he's also Nathaniel. Uh, but the only mention that I can recall of Bartholomew is, is in this listing. Uh, Matthew, I mentioned, uh, is Levi that we already talked about, uh, who wrote the first gospel. 
Uh, Thomas was also called the twin. Um, let's see. He said he wouldn't uh, believe that the Lord has, had risen until he saw evidence. Okay. That's uh, Doubting Thomas. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, let's see. Uh, he held a place and responsibility in Jerusalem after James, uh, the son of, of, of Zebedee, had been killed by Herod. Uh, Simon the Zealot, uh, I don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, Judas, the son of James, uh, this is possibly the same as Jude, who authored the epistle. Um, it's, it's sometimes believed that he could be Lebius, uh, whose surname was, was uh, uh, Thaddeus. And Judas Iscariot, we, we of course know him as, as the portrayer of Christ. Um, he's also known as uh, the son of perdition. Uh, the field where he died is known as the field of blood. Uh, but still, every time I read, read in the gospel where, where Christ said to Satan, uh, go ahead and do what you must do, I shake a little bit. You know, knowing that, that Christ gave Satan permission to enter him, enter him and, uh, and do that. Uh, yeah, okay. Now, what we're coming up to next is the Servant on the Plain. Um, there are great similarities to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. That's, uh, that's uh, Matthew 5 if memory serves. Um, one, of the, one of the great differences is that the Sermon on the Mount had blessings, but no woes. And the Sermon on the Plain does have woes. And we might ask ourselves why. Well, this was given to a great multitude, as, excuse me, as well as to the twelve. And it seems that um, whenever Jesus had a large crowd following him, he spoke very bluntly to them. And, and basically, he knew that many were following him for his miracles, not only his teaching, for his feeding them, not only his teaching and his miracles, and Christ wanted to do some threshing, okay? In other words, to, to winnow out those who weren't true believers. And so when Christ taught to great crowds, he, he spoke very bluntly. He was not politically correct. And that's uh, one of the great mistakes that our, our preachers today are making, okay? We need to speak bluntly and honestly and, and teach those who may be searching for Christ, the truth, okay? The truth of the word, the truth that Christ is the way, the truth, the light, and the life, but also that we all have a choice whether to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, to repent of our sins. And repenting means not only acknowledging that we're sinners, but truly being desirous to change our ways, okay? 
and to strive for righteousness, to make clear and discernible changes in our life that help us on the way to prove not only to God, but to yourself, okay? And and that proof is in the fruits of your life, the works of your life. But remember, works don't save you. Christ saves you. Christ's sacrifice saves you. Christ's propitiation save you. But works and fruits are proofs that you literally have changed and are changing and are striving to become more worthy. Because in this life, none of us can be completely worthy of the Father. Okay? But you should strive to prove to him, to him, but also, and quite importantly, to yourself. Okay? And proofs are in the works of doing good things, doing good deeds, but also spending time in the Word, studying the Word, communing with the Father and His Spirit, growing His Spirit within you. Okay? Now, here on the Sermon on the Plain, Christ begins with what are called the Beatitudes. Okay, now we begin with the Beatitudes, and they're not all that difficult, and um, a lot of people have problems understanding these, but it's actually quite simple. So let's go ahead and dig into it, and I'll, I'll explain it to you. Uh, you. You'll see how easy it is. Uh, verse 17, when they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him, and he healed everyone. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? Verse 23, when that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that same way. Now, the key little phrase in the Beatitudes is what? Because you follow the Son of Man. Now, when Christ says, God blesses you who are poor, well, God isn't saying you're blessed because you're poor. Jesus is speaking about what? A self-imposed poverty for his sake. 
if you forego the things of this world so that you can teach others and lead others to Christ, you're blessed. Okay? If you live a life where you're well-to-do, are you likely to take time in your life to learn about Christ? Are you likely to dedicate your time to teaching and preaching to others who are in need, who are suffering, and lead them to eternal salvation? Of course not. Okay, Christ teaches over and over again. The rich are in a bad, bad place. They might be happy now. Ooh, look at me. I launch big rockets. Ooh, look at me. I buy many mansions. Ooh, look at me. I buy big fancy boats. Aren't I a great person? No, you're not. Okay, you're in a bad bad situation because your life is going to end. There's not a thing you can do about it. You are going to die. And at the point that you die, something's going to happen. You're either going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. Okay. Those who go to heaven are who? Those who have truly repented of their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and made strides in their life to turn their life towards Christ. The proof of that action is their fruits, their works. The works don't save them. The sacrifice of Christ saves them. Next, God blesses you who are hungry now. Is God saying, is Christ saying, it's a blessing to be hungry? No. Christ is saying those who forego fancy meals and allow themselves to live humbly and eat humbly, and they do so because you follow the Son of Man, you serve the Son of Man, those are the ones who are blessed. Next, Christ says, God blesses you who weep now. Okay. Well, who is Christ talking about here? Those who weep for what? The state of the church. Okay. Those who shed tears for his sake. Okay. Those who realize that the state of of the church in the 21st century is lost. Does your church teach that if you go to church and sing songs and say certain words, you're going to have gold bullion rain down upon you? Is that what Christ wants his children to learn? No, it isn't. That isn't what Christ wants you to learn at all. Churches should spend time doing what? Teaching the truth of the word. What did Christ teach? Time and time again. He taught the way to salvation. He taught the way to hell. He taught heaven is real. He taught hell is real. He taught in parables. 
so you could easily understand the truth of his word. And I'll teach you every single one of his parables in a way that's simple that you can understand. Okay? And what's more important? Being rich and having fancy things? Will you be able to take these mansions and these rockets with you to heaven? No. What do you take to heaven with you? One thing and one thing alone. Your soul. Now, what happens when you die? A decision is made. How is that decision made? Based upon how much money you made in this life? Or how much good you did in this life? How much good you did for yourself? Or how much good you did for others? How many times you deceived others through lying and deceit and theft? Or how much love you showed others? And how much effort and time you took to lead them to the truth that this life is designed to be temporary. The code that God wrote in our physical bodies was designed with a countdown. A countdown to what? The time that the decision will be made upon your final destination. Where will you go when you die? Do you know? You better find out. Because that day is coming. Okay? Live your life for your eternal existence. Don't live your life for the short-term physical gratifications that you can achieve in this life. Because one of the greatest temptations that Satan has at his disposal is what? The temptations of the flesh. Okay? And for those of you that do try to live the life that Christ wants us to, remember how he, he finished off this little section of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Plain. He says, remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets the same way. How did Isaiah die? Do you remember? Okay. Now, after the Beatitudes comes what? The sorrows. Now, these sorrows are the woes that I mentioned just a little bit ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the woes that aren't included on the Sermon on the Mount. Listen carefully. Verse 24. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have your only 
happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now? For a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now? For your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praised the false prophets. Now, could Christ have been any more clear? Let's take these one verse at a time. Okay, the first one. What sorrow awaits you who are rich? Now, this applies to more than one quote-unquote class of rich people. The first and most obvious are the, what, the top, uh, what, 10% or 1% or whatever word you want to use or whatever quartiling you want to use. Um, quite simply... If you have an obscene amount of wealth and you use that wealth in any manner other than to help the most people that you can in a clear and obvious way, what does that mean? Well, that means you have some serious moral problems, okay? There is no logical, philosophical, theological, any way you want to phrase it, excuse for having that kind of wealth and not using it in a way that benefits the most people. Okay? Now, people with that kind of wealth will use excuses to justify it. Well, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. God can see through your BS excuses, okay? You're not fooling him. You're not fooling Christ. You're not fooling the Spirit. The only person you're fooling is yourself. Now, another way to look at this is people that claim to be Christian. Yet they hoard their wealth for a rainy day. And... When they tithe, they tithe a small percentage. They don't tithe that 10%. Tithing is such that there's no excuse. It's exactly 10% of your net income, period. And, and that's the least amount that you're supposed to give. Above that are your alms, are your good works and your good deeds. Okay? So, you know... I, I try. I've I've met so many people that that think they're doing good, and oh, when I die, I'm going to give away ninety percent of my wealth to charity or some other BS like that. You're making excuses, and you're not going to fool God. You are going to be judged. Okay, those that are Christians and save up for a rainy day and, and don't. How much good can you do in the world 
if you have even middle-class wealth, if you're driving down the street and you see a homeless person, do you pick them up, put them in your car, take them home, give them a bath, uh, call a friend that's a doctor, have them checked out, put a roof over their head until they can find a job and take care of themselves? Or do you make an excuse as to why you can't do that? Okay? Uh There are so, so, so many things that God is going to see that I'm not going to mention today. So if you want to hate me for saying these things, that's that's fine. I'm used to being disliked because I I tell the truth. And a lot of people dislike that. I'm sorry. I'm hoping that, that someone out there will hear this and examine themselves better than any human being outside of themselves could. And look at your own life and say, what can I do today to make a difference? And if you're rich, God forgive you. Okay? Money in itself isn't evil. What you do with it and how you justify your your superfluous expenditures. Okay? There's no justification that God is going to accept other, well, there is no justification. Okay, you know what's right, God knows what's right, and it's up to you to turn your life around. Okay, what sorrow awaits you who are rich? Could Christ have been any more clear? The only happiness you're going to have according to Jesus Christ, is the happiness that you have in this life. And remember, this life is a smidgen. It's a vapor. It's nothing in eternity. How foolish are you to use wealth for today when tomorrow is eternity? Okay? 25. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now? For a time of hunger awaits you. Could that be any more clear? Do you eat more than you need to survive a healthy life? If you do, how many other people could have eaten that food and been healthy instead of starving? Do you weigh more than you should? Are you making excuses for that? How many other people that are starving today could eat and be healthy instead of starving? Period. Judge yourself for yourself because God will judge you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now? For laughing will turn into mourning and sorrow. Well, are you living your life as... <laughs> are you living your life in a manner that you live for the physical pleasures that you can have for today? Is your laughing caused by something other than righteousness? Is your laughing caused by chemicals or alcohol 
are a joy brought about by sin in one form or another? Christ says, laugh today, for tomorrow is morning. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds? This is what we've talked about before. Do you seek self-validation from people? If you're rich and glorify yourself by praise from the crowds, you have that double indemnity. You're doubly in trouble. Double trouble. Okay? How difficult is it for someone not only who has money, but who has praise from the people to turn their life around and realize that they're going to be damned and seek eternal salvation? How difficult for them. What sorrow for them, Jesus Christ says. For nigh is the time that they will seek their eternal salvation. If you're rich and have praise by the crowds, how many people that are in your inner orbit are going to tell you the truth that you're sinning? How many people are in your orbit have enough courage to say, you must stop now and turn your life around? How many people like that listen to someone like me telling them the truth? How many of you are calling me the fool? Call me a fool if you like. Beat me if you like. If only you take a moment to examine yourself and to truly turn your life around and seek eternal salvation because eternity lasts far longer than this short vapor that we call life. I would rather you not suffer. Now let's close this section with a secret. Actually, it's better phrased a secret weapon. And that secret weapon is love. And that's what Christ talks about next. Love. Does someone who loves you truly want what's good for you? Okay. A good way to describe love is, I've done this in some of my other sermons if you've heard them, and we'll get into it when we talk about how uh, the Apostle Paul talks about love. But the way I describe love is to truly want what's best for someone else without any desire for recompense or recognition. Okay? Now, an example of this is if you have people in your inner circle do they truly want what's best for you? 
If so, how would they show it? Would they tell you the truth? Okay. What you're doing now is wrong. Okay. Why is it wrong? Let's look at the truth and find out for ourselves. Well, what is the truth? The truth is that this life is temporary. And God, our creator, wrote us a book so that we could understand the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And in this society today, nobody wants to look at this book. Well, why wouldn't anyone want to look at the truth? The answer is simple. Their hearts have been hardened. And what that means is that Satan has a power to close off your hearts from what is right and what is good and what is true. And if your heart is hardened, it is really, really difficult to break through that hardened shell to see the truth. And what's really sad is it is that very truth that will lead you to eternal salvation. But Christ gave us a secret weapon. And that secret weapon is love. And in order for you to utilize that secret weapon, you must first understand what love is. And the only way you'll understand love is to read the Word. Because it is the Word that waters that little droplet of Holy Spirit that's within you, if you've truly repented. If you haven't truly repented, you do not have the Holy Spirit within you, period. If you have not repented, Christ has not planted that minuscule seed of Ruach Hakma within you. Okay? But once you do truly repent and dig into that word, that Holy Spirit will grow within you. Okay? And that Holy Spirit is love. And he will guide you. I say he because the Holy Spirit is a person, a person that is part of that trinity of Godhood. Okay? And that's what Christ talks about next. Love. Okay, first he begins with the Beatitudes. Then he goes on to the woes. And then he gives you that secret weapon. And another secret I'll tell you is that it's really easy for others who do not have that Holy Spirit within them to laugh at you when you do love. And it's hard to be laughed at, especially if you're a newborn believer. It's hard to face that ridicule, that scoffing, that mocking. But you can work through that. You can let people laugh at you. You can let people mock you. You can let people scorn you. Why? Because of that minuscule possibility that when you display the truth of God's love to those who are mocking you, they may begin to doubt themselves. And when you plant that seed of doubt in their mocking, 
That's when God can work his miracles within them and lead them to the truth. Okay? Hardened hearts can be broken through. That's why God has the tribulation planned. He wants to break through those that have been caught by Satan. He wants to give them that one last chance to reach eternal salvation. Because in this tribulation that's about to come, if they turn down God that last time, they are lost forever. And that's a damnation I wouldn't wish on my worst enemies. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And that's what Christ teaches us here in verse 27. Verse 27. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Well, let's just pause here. What's one of the last things Christ did on his crucifixion? He said, God, forgive them, for they know not what to do. These are people who, who, who took a cat of nine tails. And if you don't know what that is, I'll explain it again. It's, it's, it's picture a rod with a long strap of leather attached to it. And on that long strip of leather are attached hunks of iron, hunks of metal, hunks of rock, hunks of teeth. And they whipped Jesus Christ with it to the point where his skin was literally ripped from his body. They mocked him. They beat him. They spat upon him. They put a crown of thorns that dug into his scalp and ripped the skin off his scalp, and he was bleeding, and he was tortured, and he was hung on a cross. He was nailed to that cross, and they still mocked him and spit upon him. And what did he do? He prayed for them. That, ladies and gentlemen, is love. To pray for those who torture you is true love. It is agape Love. It is a love that we cannot comprehend, a love that is greater than any human being could ever conceive. That is love. If people beat you, pray for them. If people steal from you, pray for them. If people mock you, pray for them. Why? Because that is love. You might think to yourself, how could you ever do that? Because it is love. Love those who mock you. Love those who steal from you. Love those who wrong you. Jesus Christ himself did it when he was beaten in a way that we just can't comprehend. And what did God do? when Christ stood upon that cross and he was beaten. He said, this is my beloved, and in him I am proud. God praised Jesus for that love. Okay? 
Now, we as human beings have an inbred, nasty, disgusting, selfish nature. A desire to seek only for ourselves. That is the stain of sin that is on our bodies of flesh. You must rip that evil nature from yourself. Pray to the Holy Spirit to purge that evil nature from yourself so that God can let his spirit grow within you. That's what Christ is teaching here. And I was, I was wronged in ways that someone that I loved deeply, actually two, three people in my life that I loved deeply, wronged me in ways that tore my heart asunder. They stole not only money from me, but they stole my, my, my love for them. They ripped it from me, and I mourned a long time. And I got over it. It was tough. And then I prayed to, to the Heavenly Father, please forgive them. And I pray now, Heavenly Father, those that have wronged me, and you know who they are, Heavenly Father, I forgive them, and I pray that you forgive them too. But more importantly, I pray that you lead them to salvation because I don't want them to suffer. I don't want them to know what hell is like. Please lead them away from their lives of sin and lead them to eternal salvation. Okay, and that's what Christ is teaching here. It's hard, ladies and gentlemen. It's hard to love those who wrong you. And it's difficult to stand up when someone is sinning in front of you and say what you're doing is wrong. I pray that you have that courage. I pray that God grants you that courage so that he can give you the strength through the Holy Spirit to help lead others who are sinning in front of you away from that sin and to their eternal salvation because it's available to everyone. There is only one sin that cannot be forgiven. Now, they don't teach this properly, and I'll, I'll tell you now. There is only one sin that cannot be forgiven, and that is witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit. Witnessing the power of God and denying it. Okay? In other words, saying that isn't God, or saying that's Satan, or saying that's something else. Okay? If you witness the power and grace in your life, the power of the Holy Spirit and deny it. That is the only sin that can be that can't be forgiven. It's not murder. Okay, as an example, uh, uh, well, Moses murdered. And what did Jesus, what did what did God do? 
he made him one of his greatest prophets. Okay? There is no sin that cannot be forgiven except denying the power of the Holy Spirit. So everyone can be saved, no matter what sin they've committed. Okay? Christ continues in verse 29. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. We've all heard that. Okay? Let them beat you, but then pray for them, is what Christ is saying. Christ continues, If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. People have asked me, why didn't I sue those that stole from me? Right, here's the answer. They stole from me a lot. Could I have hired an army of lawyers and gotten them back? Sure. Probably put them in jail. But why don't I do that? Because Christ said not to. What are we to do instead? Pray for them. And I have. And I continue to do so. Please do the same also. Material gain in this world doesn't mean a thing. Eternal salvation means everything. Not just your eternal salvation, but the eternal salvation of those who are sinning against you. Why? Because Christ himself said, one single soul is more valuable than the entire world. Even the soul of someone who sins against you. Okay? It's hard to accept. It really is. But the way that we know that it is true is because Christ said it. Jesus Christ said, love is more important. It's hard to accept in today's world. Verse 32. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. That's a heck of a point, isn't it? Christ is emphasizing that if you have someone beside you that that truly loves you, and you truly love them, what good is that? Okay? Does that help lead someone else to salvation? If you believe in Christ, that's your job to help bring others home. Okay? Verse 33. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? 
even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. A great example of that. Is there any banker who won't loan money to somebody with perfect credit? Okay. I'll add to this that it's better just to give money to those who need it instead of worrying about getting it back. Just give it. If you have money and you know someone that needs it, give it. But don't give it in a way that there'll be people around you, ooh, look, you're giving money to somebody who needs it. That's wrong. Why? Because part of your recompense is the validation of other people seeing you do good. Give money to somebody who needs it in a way that nobody will ever know about it. Only you should know about it and God. Why God? Because he knows everything. If you are listening to this today and you know somebody who needs help, find a way to help them without them ever knowing about it. Okay? Verse 35. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Okay, now, after teaching about love, Christ teaches us about judging. And um, this concept within Scripture is often improperly taught and not completely understood. So, um, let's go ahead and dig in, and then I'll highlight a few things for you, because this is actually very important. Uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus continues speaking. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will all come back against you. Forgive others, and you will be forgiven. Give, and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Press down, shaken together, to make room for more. Running over, and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Now, 
on this concept of judging. Uh, basically, there are two things that love doesn't do. Um, love does not judge, and love does not condemn. Um, what we must do is not judge someone's motives, okay? The motives behind their actions. Why? Because we can't read someone else's heart. We can't know why someone acts the way they do. And we must not judge another Christian's stewardship, okay? Essentially, a heart that is critical and fault-finding violates that spirit of love. But here is where it's mistaught. There are certain areas that we as Christians must judge, okay? We must judge whether or not people are true Christians. Otherwise, we could never recognize an unequal yoke. Uh, we must judge sin in our homes. We must judge sin in our churches. Um, basically, we must judge between good and evil, but we cannot impugns someone's motives or assassinate their character. Now, this part is very rarely taught and very rarely executed in Scripture or in churches as it should be, as Christ taught us, as the Word teaches us. For now, let me give an example from... Uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, you might want to write this down for yourself. Second uh, Corinthians chapter six, uh, starting around verse fourteen. Um, basically, Saint Paul here is teaching about the temple of the living God. Okay, beginning with verse fourteen. Do not team up with those who are unbelievers, okay? In other words, do not associate with unbelievers, okay? We should approach unbelievers and try to bring them home to God, okay? But that's how verse 14 starts out. Do not team up with those who are unbelievers. The Apostle Paul continues, how can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and Satan? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
as God said, I will live in them and walk among them. Okay, he lives in us with his Holy Spirit. He continues, I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Do not touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, now that quote originates in Second Samuel chapter 7, starting with verse 14. Now, the other verse we read was about forgiveness. Okay, now, with forgiveness, um, where Christ says, forgiven, you will be forgiven. One way, and I believe the right way to interpret that is, our forgiveness, the amount of forgiveness we've received from the Father, will be dependent upon our willingness to forgive others, okay? Now, something to keep in mind is some people get confused by this and they say, well, other scriptures say that when we receive Christ by faith, we are freely and unconditionally forgiven. Well, how can these two concepts of forgiveness reconcile each other? Well, it's quite simple. Okay, yes, when we receive Christ by faith, we are freely and unconditionally forgiven. But what we must keep in mind is what type of forgiveness is that? Okay, theologically, what we're talking about here is the difference between judicial forgiveness and one way to phrase it is parental forgiveness. What do I mean? Well, Judicial forgiveness is granted by God, okay? That's his unconditional covenant with us. And the unconditional covenant is that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and repent of our sins, okay, uh, the penalty for our sins has been forgiven, okay? When we accept Christ, are we forgiven? Yes. How are, how are we forgiven? The penalty for our sins has been paid. Okay. Now, parental forgiveness is also granted by God. That is granted by God to us that has been forgiven. Okay. Now, when we as children confess our sins and he forsakes our sins, what that does is restores us into fellowship with the Father. Okay? Now, being restored into fellowship with the Father has nothing to do with the penalty of the sin. The penalty of the sin has been paid. Okay? Now, as Father, God cannot forgive us 
when we have been restored into the family and are unwilling to forgive one another. Okay, that's not God. That's not how God works. Okay, God cannot walk in fellowship with those who are unwilling to forgive. And that's what Christ is talking about here. He's talking about parental forgiveness. We have been restored, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and repented of the sins. We have been restored into the family. Okay? So what Christ is talking about here is parental forgiveness. Forgive and you will be forgiven. But we must forgive. Our willingness to forgive determines our own forgiveness. Okay? That's very, very important to point out. And I can't think of a time that I've ever heard it taught uh, from the pulpit. And that is very, very important. Okay? Now that um, Christ taught about forgiveness, uh, he gives a good example here. And it's important that we understand this. Okay, verse 39. Then Jesus gave the following illustration. Can one blind person lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Students are not greater than their teacher. But the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. Now, um, when Christ is teaching about the blind leading the blind, notice it comes right after judging and forgiveness. Okay? And what he is referring to here is the concept of depth and knowledge of the word. What do I mean? Um, I was a professor for a long time. Okay. Now, a person cannot teach what he does not know. Okay. And if a teacher has deficiencies in his subject area, those deficiencies will carry on to his pupils, okay? If I, as a professor, didn't have the knowledge necessary to properly teach a subject to my students, the ability for my students to understand that subject would be barred, okay? Now, in dealing with the word... If someone is teaching the word and does not understand the word, does not commune with the Father, is not filled with the Spirit, how could he properly teach the truth to a disciple? Okay? And we'll get to an area later where I teach about the responsibilities of being a preacher 
or a pastor. Okay. Uh, Christ sets a very high bar and there are many who don't live up to it. And there's a great penalty for that. Okay. Now, on the other hand, a student that is instructed properly as a disciple or a student becomes like the master. Okay. The better the teacher, the better the student, the better that subject area, or in this case, eternal life, carries on to the next teacher. That's why you cannot take reading the word lightly. You must be consumed with it because your life truly depends upon it. Whether or not you reach eternal salvation and spend your eternal life in heaven with the Father depends upon your ability to read, study, understand, and implement the word in your daily life. Okay? Christ was very, very clear on that subject. Okay? Now, Christ gives another example, okay? Uh, verse, oh, sorry, I scrolled too far. Verse 41. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? Now, in other translations, that word log is, is uh, substituted with the word plank. Uh, choose either word, whichever one speaks to you clearly. Okay, again, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, this is very simple, okay? Uh, the difference between my being a professor and my teaching uh, the Word is in order to properly teach the Word, I must live the Word, okay? I didn't need to live science and math and physics and meteorology, okay? I just happened to be good at it, but I didn't have to live it. In a way, I did for many years, but this subject matter is entirely different, okay? When you read the Word daily, you absorb that Word. You allow the Spirit to fill you and guide you and open the truth to you. And it literally does. The more you read the Word, the more the Word is opened up to you. I can speak to that absolutely. I've read uh, Scripture... <laughs> Look at all the Bibles on my shelf over there. Um, I've read through many different translations. And I can read the same verse again and again. And every time I read that same verse, more is opened up to me. And you might say, how can that be? You're an old dude. Yeah, I'm, uh, what am I? Uh, I'm 55 right now. Okay. And I've read the word a lot. 
I'm the kind of guy when I, when I was a child, I went to church camp every summer. Uh, basically, it was a way for my parents to get rid of me uh, for a while over the summer. But I enjoyed it. I went to church camp every summer. I was a member of Campus Life. I read the Word as a child. I read the Word as a teenager. I read the Word as an adult. And now I'm reading it as a middle, when does middle age end? I don't know. I guess I'm still middle-aged. But I've read the Word a lot. And a secret is, the older you become, the more the life lessons that you have lived aid you in understanding the Word. Okay? I am probably fortunate, and I thank you, Heavenly Father, that I've always had God part of my life, always. Even when I was mad at him, when my mother died of cancer when I was a teenager, it was obscene. It was sick. It was vile. I didn't understand it. How could God allow that to happen? I was mad at God. Okay? And still, in a way, I'm mad at God because I know that God could have healed my mother if he chose to. He has healed others, and I apologize if you can hear that train in the background. I'm not rich. I live very near the train tracks, and that is uh, either Amtrak, probably Amtrak, but it could also be a freight train. We get them every 15 minutes or so. Some honk their horn more than others. But the point I'm making is that as a child, I did not understand my mother's pain the same way I do today. Today, I understand that we literally are living in Satan's world. How can I say that? Because Scripture says it. Okay? Remember, the three temptations of Christ are, are my favorite example of that. How could Satan offer Christ the kingdoms of this world if they weren't his to give? Okay? It, he, you know, Christ is way too smart for that, and Satan knows that, okay? So they were his to give. And I gave you many examples of Scripture where Satan is king of this world. Satan is the god of this world. Satan is the king of the air. And while I was a meteorologist many years ago, I happened to read that Scripture, and I went, oh, my gosh, does that mean since I'm studying meteorology— that I'm studying Satan, and I wrestled with that dearly. I think, if I remember correctly, that that was in the Left Behind series, uh, which actually helped to open up my heart to Scripture. Um, there's oh, several misinterpretations in in the series, but it was a good series, okay? And I, I wrestled with that idea, but we literally are living in Satan's world. An easy way to understand that is to simply look around at the world today. What shape is it in? How far has the condonement of sin gone? Where not only people who profess to be good people and people who profess to be Christians condone sin in its various forms, but uh, our supposed uh, leaders of the religious faith do so as well, okay? And so what, what Christ is teaching here is we must 
look into ourselves to recognize our own faults, because no matter who you are, you have them. And if you assume the mantle of teaching the word, or more importantly, leading a congregation, you must acknowledge those faults and fix them. And more importantly, not teach untruths. And that's what we have in our churches today. Okay? Christ is saying, you must look at yourself so you can fix yourself. Especially if you're a teacher. And notice Christ using the word hypocrite. He used it over and over again. Especially when dealing with religious authority of the time. Now, think about Christ's approach to the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees and how he called them out in public. Okay? He called them out in public for a reason to show their faults to the people and to show the faults to the religious leaders because he cares about everyone, okay? We're all sinners. Christ wants to save us all. But he has, uh, I don't know if pet peeve is the right word, but a particular distaste for those professing to represent the faith and doing so blatantly, abhorrently, dishonestly. Okay? Now I need to pause for a drink. Okay, in verse 43, Christ gives another example, and it's another good one. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Oh, this is good stuff. Okay. Another way to interpret this is the fruit a person bears is dependent upon what is within the heart of that person. Okay. Now, we judge a tree by the quality of the fruit it bears. This brings to mind Christ walking along and going to grab a fig from a tree that uh, didn't produce any figs. Well, if, when we get there, you'll see that it's actually too early in the season for that fig tree to have produced a fig. But um, what did Christ do? He killed the tree. Okay. Well, what Christ is speaking about here 
is in the area of discipleship. If a person is teaching the word, and if that person is morally pure and spiritually healthy, that person will bring forth blessings to others based upon the treasures of their heart. Okay? If you're filled with the Spirit, you have the power literally within you to bless others. That's why I give the blessing at the end of every lesson. I have the Holy Spirit within me. When I bless you with number 624, okay, you are receiving God's blessing. And that blessing isn't from me. The blessing is from God. And the blessing comes through me, through his spirit. I don't have the power to bless anything. God does. But as a true disciple of God, when I bless you, you receive the blessing of God through me. I'm nothing more than a conduit. When I teach this word, the truth is the teaching. I am not the truth. I am simply a conduit through which the truth flows. Now, I am flawed, absolutely, okay? But I do strive hard to be morally pure. And I do strive hard to be spiritually healthy, okay? And that's why the Spirit does live within me. Now, if you're someone who tries to teach and you're an impure individual, the only thing you will produce is evil, okay? So if you choose to be a disciple of Christ, you must strive to be a person of impeccable character, okay? And that's what Christ is saying here. Everybody has flaws. I know I do, okay? Identify those flaws within yourself. Strive to purge those flaws from yourself. Some of them are not easy to purge, okay? But you can do it. Why? Because if you have repented, if you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have, without a doubt, within you, at least a seed of the Holy Spirit, and you can grow it. The more you grow it, the more the Holy Spirit can work within you to cleanse you of those flaws and that unrighteousness. Verse 46. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and does not obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground 
without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. Okay? Now that itself is very, very clear. What Christ is doing here is teaching you to be wise. What does that mean? A wise man is one who comes to Christ. By coming to Christ, by repenting of your sins and accepting him as your Savior, I meant to say salvation and Savior at the same time, uh, and accepts him as your Savior, what do you receive? You receive salvation. Okay? Now, when you hear his word, when you read his word, when you commune with his word, what are you doing? You are receiving instruction. Instruction is just the beginning. The important part is life application. Apply those teachings to your life. And by doing so, you become obedient. You become obedient to his word. When you build your life on the principles of Jesus Christ and accept as your life's cause being a disciple, you have in your hands the way to build your house. When you build your house, when you build your life on that foundation of solid rock, the floods that Christ are talking about are the floods of temptation, the floods of, of what's the right way to say that, scorn and ridicule that will undoubtedly barrage your life from non-believers. You have within you that solid foundation of rock that Jesus Christ is building for you in your life. No flood, no storm can overwhelm you up to and including pain of death. You can and will survive any scorn, any ridicule, if you build your life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's teaching you here. Read his word. Learn his word. Commune with his word. Growing his spirit. His spirit is the mortar in which your house is constructed. Nothing can tear it down. You'll be laughed at. You'll be ridiculed. 
people will gloriously mock you. And that's okay. Don't be mad at them. Don't be hurt by them. Pray for them. Because you know what's coming in their life. That day of judgment. And in that day of judgment, they will receive pain and torment, the likes of which no human being could ever comprehend. Excuse me, I need to hit pause and stop Alexa. I apologize. I think that's the second time in a row that that's happened. I may need to just turn that off. It's, it's an echo show that sits on the corner of my desk. I leave it there because it has a clock on it and it has the outdoor temperature, but I may have to throw it away. But the point I was making is very, very important and very, very serious. You and I and anyone who listens to this are living in a time in our nation in our world, where not only where the moral compass of our country has gone haywire, the moral fabric of our country is disintegrating, and it's almost completely gone. What that means is that from now, well, until the end times, or until you and I die, the amount of vitriol we're going to have to face is going to grow stronger and stronger every day. And the only thing we can do about it is to pray, to teach, and most importantly, lead others to the truth. Because it is going to get worse. No human being could save this country. God could, and he's going to when Christ returns. Oh, I mentioned the other day that I was going to look it up. I may put it on my website uh, sometime this week, but 4333, I'm going to try to remember that. What that means is April 3rd, 2033 is the 2,000-year uh, anniversary of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. Okay, right about 3 p.m. That's Israel time. Israel time is uh, plus two or three, depending upon if it's daylight hours from Greenwich. Now, what that means is, um, and we'll get to uh, we'll get to end times theory um, after we finish the Gospels again, and then I go back and do Daniel and Isaiah before we move on to. Revelation first. But what that means is uh, there's what's called a pre-tribulation theory, uh, a, a rapture theory, a, a post-tribulation rapture theory, and a mid, believe it or not. But if you subtract seven years from 2033, what that brings us to is the year 2026. Okay? Now, today is May 22nd. It's a little after midnight. Uh, this one took a long time. I had to take a couple of breaks for my voice. Uh, 
I usually start recording these right about sunset so the sun doesn't beat on my monitors when I do it. But uh, this is 2022, okay? 2022 to 2026 is four years, actually less than four years because this is May 22nd. So what I'm saying is if, and that's a mighty big if, the 2,000-year anniversary of Christ's crucifixion has anything to do with the end times. That's not too far off. Doesn't mean that it does. It could be another 2,000 years. It could be 10,000 years from now. Who knows? What I do know is that the state of our society has declined dramatically more than I can ever remember uh, since all well, the history of our country uh, was was formed, okay, and uh, I, I told you that uh, I had a I had a, a sign from God the other day that uh, that leads me to believe that earthquakes may be coming soon. If they come within the next year, that'll be a sign. Uh, but uh, I may post that as well. We'll see. But the important point is. Uh, if you are waiting for a time to, to dig into Scripture, uh, now is, is, a, is a really good time to do it, okay? Make sure that you've accepted Christ. There's not a lot to it. There's no special words. All you have to do is, is literally say, Jesus Christ, I am a sinner. I truly do repent of my sins. Please come into my life. Please cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Some words to that effect. First, say that you're a sinner. Admit it. Second, let Jesus know that you accept him as your Lord and Savior. Okay? Then, most importantly, repentance doesn't mean saying the words. Repentance means making a life change altering your life by admitting in your actions that you know you're a sinner and you want to be better. You don't want to go to hell. You want to go to heaven. But most importantly, you know that you need God. You need Jesus Christ. You need the Holy Spirit in your life. You need him to become better, to become like he wanted us to be. Okay, and then dig into the word day after day after day. Read the word, apply the word, look in your life and think of things you could do to help people in any way, shape or form that you have within your ability to do so. Speak to a friend that maybe is not a believer and say, I'm thinking I need to be and and admit to them that you've asked Christ to come into your life. And if you haven't yet, speak to them and maybe do it together. Okay? And then build that life in Christ together. Okay? I'll keep teaching these words as long as I'm alive and able to do so. You'll always have me at your disposal. And I'm thinking about trying to figure out a way to do weekly sermons uh, above and beyond these, uh, but uh, I, I may need some help to do that. I'm I'm not 
physically capable of doing a lot of the things that I used to be able to do. Uh, it hurts me, but there it is. I've got to fight through it for you and for me. Okay? Now, and that's uh, that's what Christ was teaching there. And, and chapter 6 in Dr. Luke is a good one. Okay? As always, uh, please feel free to get a hold of me for anything. And uh, go to goodfriar.com and, and you'll find a way to reach me. And I'll work this week at posting a, a few helpful things. Now, as always, Heavenly Father, please allow me to bestow upon your children your blessing. In Jesus' name. I bestow upon you number 624-26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. God bless.